This episode of Radio Vet Nurse was proudly brought to you by Zilkeen. Radio Vet Nurse, the podcast with your host, Kat Robinson. You're listening to Radio Vet Nurse, the podcast for vet nurses where we tell our story. I'm your host, Kat Robinson. Vet nursing can be a tough gig, and yet we absolutely love it. So when it comes to vet nurses, who are we? How do we achieve greatness? How do we cope with the more challenging parts of our job? Radio Vet Nurse is our way to start a dialogue around these questions and to create a space where we can tell our story. Each episode, you'll hear from a different vet nurse about their personal experiences in life and in vet nursing. In this episode, I caught up with Anhil Rivera at the 2019 BNCA conference in Brisbane. Anhil is a veterinary technician specialist in the field of emergency and critical care. As an internationally recognised speaker, he lectures to vets, veterinary nurses, veterinary technicians, and has been published in journals, textbooks, and research abstracts. Arnhill has worked as a veterinary technician, director of nursing, nursing education coordinator, medical director, hospital administrator, and currently works as a consultant advising on the training of emergency and critical care nursing concepts, protocols, and procedures. In 2018, he was awarded a Steve Haskins Memorial Scholarship for his contribution to the Veterinary Emergency and Critical Care Society. Arnhill has been extremely supportive of the development of veterinary nursing in Australia and has enjoyed a 25-year friendship with the Aussie nurses. It was extremely emotional having him open the conference on the official launch day of the ABNAT scheme, and it was my absolute pleasure to join Arnhill's ever-expanding gang of Aussie vet nurse friends. Hi, Anhil. Welcome to Radio Vet Nurse. Hi, Kat. It's nice to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, it's my pleasure to have you here today. Now, just to ease on in, do you listen to podcasts? Uh, yes. Um, I listen to a podcast called MCRIT. It's a yep. human uh, a human um, emergency critical care podcast. And then there's another one that's a veterinary podcast that's out from England, a criticalist, a veterinary criticalist. He has a podcast so I mostly hear those two and I didn't even know that nurses had a podcast so it's only new yes <laughs> so I was very impressed with the people that you had interviewed there and it's uh I, I kind of know a couple of them so it was very nice to, to hear their yeah. story too from a perspective and I'm sure they'll enjoy hearing yours as well so yeah. <laughs> well that's great and can you tell us where are you from and where do you currently live I am originally from Puerto Rico yeah a uh, little island, 100 miles by 35. Well, and then uh, I moved from there uh, to Pennsylvania, worked at the University of Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. And then the director of emergency service moved to Wisconsin. She opened an emergency res- uh, critical care residency, the first one in the Midwest. Mm-hmm. And so she uh, asked me if I would go and do the nursing training. So that's how I ended up in the tundra up north. Oh, wow. Excellent. Yeah. And uh, how did you get your foot in the door with vet nursing? And I had the pleasure of hearing your story this morning because mm-hmm. we're we're here in Brisbane for the VNCA conference and you gave the opening address this morning, which I've already told you had me in tears. <laughs> um, and I heard your story, but for, for everybody else, how did you get your foot in the door with vet nursing? Um, you mean what inspired me or how did I start nursing? Yeah, both if you like. Okay. Uh, well, uh, like I said, <laughs> um, uh, we used to have uh, animals and in we lived in a 
flood-prone area, and so we had animals under the house, and when the rain season came, we would bring the animals in the house. <laughs> but then uh, during the dry season, it was my job uh, when I was like five or six to go down and feed the animals. And we had these little chihuahuas, and there was this little call, uh, chihuahua called Blackie, uh, which is like, call him a little uh, ankle vampire. <laughs> and uh, he was very, very, very aggressive. And I went to feed him, and he went to attack me, and I stepped back, and he fell off the cage, hit his head against the rock, and then went unconscious. And I didn't know. I was like seven. It was, I have never seen an animal die. And so I thought he was sleeping, so I picked him up, put him in the cage, and went upstairs, and that uh, my my uh, aunt went down to check on the dogs and found the dog dead and came up and I felt horrible because I had never thought I then got the beating of my life. <laughs> um, so that uh, that was kind of my first introduction to uh, a death with an animal. And I had always felt comfortable with animals. And then after that, a couple of years after that, my uh, I got to watch my uh, grandmother pass away. And um, I think it was... Uh, Although it was a sad experience, it was a very beautiful experience because she had this nurse come to visit her. And I saw this nurse be so empathetic and so loving. And I, th I think it, that exemplified to me what a good death would be. And I saw, wow, you know, that's what I... And I remembered then Blackie. And I said, wow, this is what I would have wished to have given that little dog. Mm. And I think that was when I said, you know, I think this is what I want to do. Mm, there's something in this. Mm -hmm. mm. And some people would run a mile from that. Some people would see that sort of caregiving and be like, whoa, yes. how do you do that? So I think you're right this morning when you said it's a profession by calling. Yes. Yeah. And then you started um, working in Puerto Rico and then transferred over to America mm -hmm. and um, got your start um, working with some amazing people and mentors. Yes. I originally, uh, the owner of the clinic in Puerto Rico sold a practice and then she went to Pennsylvania. I went to, I left Puerto Rico and went to work with her. And then through that job, I got connected to the University of Penn. And then I got a job at the emergency service and I met uh, Dr. Rebecca Kirby, who is the criticalist, emergency criticalist, very well-renowned uh, lecturer in emergency critical care. And um, she uh, kind of introduced me to the idea of, of wanting to know what it is that we monitor and, and, and understanding. And I always remember that she, she taught me that, you know, we, we can't effectively monitor that that we don't understand. Mm -hmm. And so I fell in love with this concept of learning about pathophysiology and stuff like that. And it's, I've had the blessing to have very strong women in my life like this mentor. Mm, so. mm, that's that's amazing. And how is that, um, obviously that's shaped your career to, mm. to what you're doing today and you've been really heavily involved in, in emergency and critical care mm. and I know you like um, ventilation cases mm. and that sort of thing. Where do you work at the moment and what are you doing from day to day? Um, I actually have a small consulting business where I get hired by either daytime practices that are going to start doing uh, emergency after-hours services for their clients or uh, new emergency practices that are opening and want someone to come in and train their staff. So I will mm -hmm. go in there and train the nursing staff, do a little bit of training with the receptionist about handling stress and recognizing emergency patterns in the waiting room and how to triage them to the back. But yeah, my 
all my training has been in emergency critical care. So. Yeah, yeah, excellent. Don't How? know the basics of, of vaccine protocols. <laughs> yeah, I know. I was speaking to, to a nurse last night at our networking uh, event and she was talking about TPRing patients and my nurse and I were speaking to her about you know yeah getting the juniors involved in doing that is great but how early do you get them involved and she was sort of saying yeah but we're an emergency we have to TPR everything we TPR all shift that's kind of what we do and I said to my nurse yeah they probably don't need to know the Wasaba vaccination guidelines and how many C3s the patient needs if they had their first one at 12 weeks and whereas we know all of that inside and out or you know flea and tick prevention so we definitely niche down I think in our our little areas yeah we kind of it's like the human field you know you're specialized yeah which is actually what it is now when you have all these specialties in the veterinary field nursing that's right you know dentistry internal medicine yeah. surgery and actually the emergency critical care was the first specialty mm-hmm. um uh, academy for technicians and okay. i actually sat for the first exam oh wow yeah so that's excellent so you're you're in the states are you like a boarded technician yes so yeah. i have what they call a vts veterinary yeah. technician specialist yeah and then uh, followed by the initials ECC for emergency critical care. Excellent. And as you know, in Australia, we're just sort of, um, we're, we're growing as a, yes, as a profession. Yeah, it's Yeah. Very exciting. That's right. And we're, we, as of this week, we have um, registered veterinary nurses Australia-wide. Prior, um, Western Australia has had registered veterinary nurses for a while and we're starting to get um, these additional letters like RVN and AVN. And, um, and as I learned this morning, you've been quite instrumental in guiding and inspiring the VNCA. We have a long association and friendship with you um, of 25 years. And you were at our first conference 25 years ago and uh, lending a hand to to all of the committee members back then on how do we, what direction do we go? How do we um, shine our light and and develop? So it must be amazing for you to have seen. It is. It was was very emotional for me this morning. I, I, I got a little like, you know, Collective, like they say, <laughs> talking. <laughs> I noticed it yeah. was lovely. <laughs> but uh, I, yes, I have this um, very special connection to the Aussie nurses because I think it's like the best of two worlds. You know, like you want a nurse that's very skilled and very, very efficient, but then you want a nurse that's very human and very in touch with the patients. And I think that's very well brought together in the veterinary nurses in Australia. Mm, mm. Um, and so I find that very, that's very stimulating for myself as a, as a nurse of 30 some years. Yeah, yeah. And I haven't nursed anywhere else in the world, but I have traveled around the world a lot. And I do I do know Australians um, have a lot of uh, great traits in, in those yes. ways of, we don't take ourselves very seriously and we're happy to get, you know, down and dirty and wrestle yes, like an animal if we that. have to. And <laughs> Like, yes, I would never say half of the things I say here anywhere else. (laughs) Yeah, we're good at having a laugh at ourselves. And yeah, so, uh, well, we're very lucky to have had this long association with you. What's the best part of your job? My job, I think the best part is being able to educate, help educate, inform new either the new generation coming up or going back and revisiting uh, past. nurses and and being able to take a, a different perspective look you know as how far we've come back but i i feel blessed that i can actually help um mold new minds and and, and promote the, the profession I, I i love this profession i mean this is my life and um i feel privileged that i can help 
propel it forward. Mm, absolutely, and I really think um, definitely I can see in Australia you have, and you're you're lecturing all around the world too, aren't you? Mm, like you've yes. been doing this for for a while. I think you said that this morning that you and Harold uh, were some of the first yes. veterinary technicians to start doing that. So yes. you must have seen um, incredible changes on that front yes. too. So yes. yeah, and can I ask? What is your routine when you wake up in the morning? How are you setting yourself up for the day? And at the moment, you're getting used to your jet lag as well. Yes. So, Well, yes, back home, <laughs> it's a, a big cup of coffee. Uh, and then I will usually sit in the back porch and uh, usually have some type of book, uh, either some very, you know, inspiring story or mm-hmm. maybe some meditation or something like that just you know to help me center my day mm-hmm. and all that and um and then i always take time to spend some time after that with my dogs and then we'll sit in the yard and go back over so that's kind of my little routine there mm-hmm. and uh at home at work the routine was people knew that they could not approach me till i've had two pepsis so <laughs> so when Anna walked through the door at work they knew i had walked in because my cologne first went in and then they knew that they couldn't come till they saw two cans of pepsi sitting on my desk yeah good good i think we learned that about our colleagues like mm-hmm. uh he's pre-second coffee let's not yes. talk to him yet let's ask him after second coffee when he'll be happy with the world <laughs> yes <laughs> or you bring someone exactly what would you like a cup of tea just before you ask a question yes. like now i'd love for you to go nurse the parvo patient for the day <laughs> yes the, the nurses here know that i i work based on caffeine so they yeah. always have coffee for me okay <laughs> very good i'll remember that <laughs> and what weekly or daily habit makes your life better um weekly or daily habit um i not weekly but mostly maybe every two weeks or every three weeks i like to we have a uh kind of a franciscan uh uh, monastery where I, or up in Wisconsin. So I like to go out there and just walk the grounds and mm. you know you can take the dogs with you and mm-hmm. sit down and read a book or something like that. That's kind of like what I like to do for me. Wow, it must be quite atmospheric and it is. Yeah, it is, those yeah. places have a presence. Yes. Mm. Yeah, and it's not even going into the sanctuary. It's just walking mm. the grounds. It's very peaceful and mm-hmm. I just feel very good there. How many dogs have you got? I have two. I've always had small dogs. So yeah. Chihuahuas, Dachshunds, and then um, last year I adopted a Australian healer ah. from the Humane Society. Uh-huh. Um, her name is Sydney. <laughs> Very fitting. Yes. And uh, I had not had a medium-sized dog in a long time. So mm. it was a big learning experience mm. and curve for me. And oh my Lord, can she shed. <laughs> so Swifter is my best new friend. Yeah, that's right. And they need a lot of exercise too yes. and stimulation. She hurts the other dog. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. At my first dog uh, growing up when I was about five, we uh, moved into a house where we could have a dog and my parents got us a Kelpie. Mm-hmm. And I had two older brothers and this Kelpie rounded us up our whole lives she was always happiest when we were she'd like to kind of just close us into a little (laughs) group and you know get any outliers and then she'd be like oh and then if one of us would go out into the yard to play she'd be like no (laughs) and um yeah they're definitely little yes it's in their genes isn't it it is in their genes keep everyone together where you can keep an eye on them um and do you have any strange habits or superstitions uh yes i don't get out of the bed on the left side. Oh, tell me more. <laughs> I think 
it's a, I think it's a more of a Spanish Hispanic cultural thing okay. about the left side. You know, like people who write with their left hand mm. are sinister. That's why they call it sinister. Sinister and dexter. Yes, mm. and so I'm the, I'm left handed on top of that too. Yeah, and so um, for the first years they they would you know. Uh, be very adamant that I did not learn to write with my left hand, mm. and I could never do it. So, mm. but yes, I don't get like I don't like get off the bed on the left side. <laughs> wow! And so, would other people in your family do the same thing? For example, yes. like and okay, yes. that makes sense. And I mean, I'm from an Irish Catholic family, and my mum was left is left handed, and the nuns tied her hand behind her back yes. as, as a child, I heard that yeah, too. so that she wouldn't be left handed. But it just messed with her left right brain mm-hmm. um cognition because obviously your brain is still developing at that age mm-hmm. so you know lefties are right dominant right hand is a left dominant and yes. she became confused and yes. when she was stressed um and she still does it today she would write mirror writing from right to left oh, so she would always do her exams like that and they would have to mark them with a mirror mm-hmm. And if she was flustered and she would hand me a shopping list and say, quickly, can you go get this? There are people coming for dinner. I'd have to take it to the bathroom and turn it around and read oh, it in the mirror. Aren't. So it had long-lasting effects on her. But, um, wow. yeah, it's interesting that you still, um, you still, you know, yes. don't want to do that. And, yes. yeah, I do understand all of those Catholic rituals and yes. things that stick with and, you. And, and I'm not a, uh, you know, like one of these staunch Catholics, but I have little Catholic little customs like i love going to midnight mass for christmas me too because i love the, the all the glamour and the, the pompousness of it and, and the, the incense and all that yeah. and, and i also like easter um but um i when i came out of high school i kind of uh did this little i visited different religions because mm. i had this urge to so for a while i was seven day adventist and i was oh, a jehovah really? witness and i was yeah. lutheran and then yeah. i just came back and kind of took the best that I could from there and yeah. made my own little menage. I like the idea of being like a magpie and swooping mm-hmm. down and picking up the shiny things mm-hmm. from all of them and just yeah. having your own spirituality. Mm-hmm. And we, we were the same. My parents were atheists, but I went to Catholic schools and my mum was a lapsed Catholic. So mm-hmm. other kids' first communion card said, happy first Holy Communion, love mum and dad. Mine said, happy first Holy Communion. Did you know in Islam they believe this and the Buddhists <laughs> do this? And so just keep an open mind, right? <laughs> So I definitely do the same thing. I yeah. go, ooh, that's that's a cool thing that yes. they believe in. And the more you look at all of these religions, the mm. more you see the same central sort mm. of tenets yeah. exist in a lot of them. Yeah, you know, and I think that also helped me in my public speaking because uh, when I came back, I got involved in a lot of youth groups, mm-hmm. and so we used to get the youth in Easter together, mm-hmm. and we would prepare these little retreats, and we would like kind of preach for them there. And I mm-hmm. think that's where I learned. Uh, to be comfortable talking in public. Yeah, like that. that's right. And I mean, when you grow up going to mass, sometimes it's your turn to stand up and, and to read. To yeah. read. Yeah. yeah, so you do learn yeah, yeah, lots of good skills and ethics. So excellent. I love that strange habit. <laughs> and can you think of a purchase made by you or an employer in the past that has positively impacted your vet nurse life in recent memory? Um, when I first uh, went to Wisconsin, they were using an old CBC machine that required mercury. Wow. And um, when I went for my orientation, uh, I was going to start the next day because the girl was going on vacation. So my orientation was eight hours shift with her. And mm-hmm. she said, this is the CBC machine. It leaks mercury, so be careful. 
<laughs> that was my introduction to the CBC machine. Gee, I've got some OHS red flags going up in my mind. <laughs> yes. So I, after a couple of months, I really, really pushed that we get a new CBC machine and get rid of that uh, hazardous thing. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah, that's a, yeah. That's a pretty biggie. Yes. <laughs> uh, recently, I discovered that there's this little portable EKG machine that oh, you yeah. can put on the animal's skin and yeah. just get... And so I've introduced that to the clinic where I'm training as a mm-hmm. means of triaging animals with abnormal heartbeats. Mm-hmm. And so the nurses, when they triage the back, will just simply put it on, get a strip. Yeah. Um, and it's wonderful. Excellent. So do you know if they're expensive? Actually, no. They're like the machine itself. It's like 100 American dollars. Yeah. And then a the little device that you hook up uh, around the machine to protect it. Uh, and then to kind of have it work with your phone, it's like $45, so like $150. Oh, wow. Yeah. It's called a live core. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Don't have any stock in it. <laughs> uh, but alivecore.com, and they have a nice little uh, video showing on a dog. And you don't need to shave or anything. You oh, just wow. put alcohol and put it there. Yeah. You can get a 30 minutes, 30 second strip, one second, one minute strip, or a continuous strip. Yeah. Then you lo- uh, download it to the, the cloud. Yeah. That's fantastic. I'll put a, I'll Google that and I will put a link to it in the show notes. And I think some of these monitoring devices are getting um, more and more portable and small and accessible. And, and user-friendly. And user-friendly. I've seen um, photos on, on social media of people putting Apple watches on patients mm-hmm. too and, um, and, and using those for monitoring. Yes. So. And, you know, there are, now there are these little... Uh, glucometers that mm. you can put with your phone oh wow so you just add this little device mm-hmm. and so it's so great because you know you, when you have a couple of hypoglycemic animals and you have one glucometer it's really mm. frustrating as a nurse to be mm. waiting for the glucometer mm. so you know the practice invests in these little devices that for each person who has a, a iphone or a portable phone mm-hmm. and everybody can do a glucose everywhere in the hospital yeah that's really good and you know i'm all for toys but i always tell nurses you know um it, it's not never gonna replace the what you bring to the forte as as mm. a nurse with your hands and your ears and your eyes you mm. know and, then, and that's never going to be replaced by a machine that's right we would just you and i were discussing that last night i said that when we opened we bought our um equipment from a vet with a really basic setup mm-hmm. and then we've had to save money for everything we've wanted to buy and i mean at first we didn't even have um, a digital x-ray developer so you know that was a huge thing we had to buy at first so other things have had to wait and so for the first couple of years we just had for monitoring anesthetics mm-hmm. a um, a pulse ox and an app alert and I hear nurses now say gosh I remember 20 years ago when all we had was a pulse ox and an app yes. alert and I'm like yeah what dark ages of veterinary science <laughs> you were practicing in Matt yes. we need to get some more equipment yes yes <laughs> so but I mean as I learned um, you know in my first days nursing with Matt, we're monitoring the patient, not the equipment anyway. And I mean, it is lovely being able to notice trends early and to act on mm-hmm. them. But at the end of the day, your basic skills have to. Yes. It's like um, my mentor would say, um, you know, we don't treat numbers, we treat animals. Yeah. So, so it's good you have a machine there, but you can't just look at the machine and say, oh, my pet's fine and not get down there and touch it and hear it. And, yeah, that's right. Uh, like, one of my pet peeves with nurses is the when they carry all day long the stethoscope around their neck, mm-hmm. and I yet to see them sculpt some animal's chest or lungs because we're really bad about that. Have you noticed that nurses really mm. are not that good about using the stethoscope? Mm, it's like right. a fashion statement for us. Yeah, that's right. It's like a, a license to practice. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, you really have to be doing that a lot in order to be picking up, you know. Oh, especially cats because yeah. they can have such 
of localized murmurs. Yeah. You know, that they can only be heard in a specific place, whereas a dog, yeah. you can hear a murmur anywhere around the chest. Yeah. But that, cats can have very localized murmurs. Yeah. And you need, especially when we're dealing with stressed or painful patients in mm-hmm. in um, in the hospital too and trying to listen over, you know, panting and that mm-hmm. sort of thing. So, yeah, I'd like, like to see um, all nurses having the time and the encouragement mm-hmm. to practice mm-hmm. doing all of those things yeah. more. Um, sometimes the day gets away from you and... Yes. I think every practice should have a talk for their nurses on the proper use of the stethoscope. Mm, actually, that might go on my to-do list. <laughs> <laughs> I have seen people put it in their ears backwards. I had a nurse when in this place where I went to train that uh, we were talking about sculpting, and he said, I've never been able to hear heart sounds. With the... <laughs> I said, what? Yeah, no. So I said, well, show me. And he... Um, First, he was using the wrong side of the stethoscope. No. And second of all, he wasn't including the bell uh-huh. in order for, to hear with the diaphragm better. Yeah. So this poor guy hadn't heard a, a heart sound with his stethoscope for months. Yeah. Well, luckily, this, this nurse was early on in her career and she was <laughs> monitoring a tick patient, I think. And she came to me and was like, the heart rate is really bad. I can't, I can't even hear it. <laughs> and I came out and I was like... Well, the patient's not dead, so they've definitely got a heartbeat going. Yeah. Like, let's see, sh- show me what you were doing. And so, yeah, in they went backwards, and I was like, okay, that's your problem right there. Yes. <laughs> so, yeah, and I think sometimes we feel silly asking mm-hmm. these things. So you're right. Take the proactive step of saying to everybody, come at 5 o'clock on Friday. We're all doing yes. an hour on, on on how to do this properly. Yes. I mean, the simplest thing sometimes here, you'd be amazed how people are, are – are, confused and not able to function because they have misinterpreted something or misread something. Mm-mm, that's right. That's right. And if you're not getting to do it frequently. And I see people um, struggle a lot too when they, they're not brought in to do pathology very often, but then they're yes. helping because the vet's busy and they're trying to read the packed cell volume mm-hmm. on that. Do you have the, them in the States? Like yes. The circle little... and the tube. Mm-hmm. And they'll be like, oh my God, it's, you know, five. And you're like, yeah. no, 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 hang on. Come <laughs> over here. You've got to line this up with this yes. and the top of this to that. And then yes. If you have that explained to you once, yes. sometimes if you don't then get to do that for two months, two months yes. later, you're like, I don't want to ask them again because I've forgotten already. Yeah. <laughs> and I don't know um, here, but ours has uh, in the center two dark lines that just go halfway up the chart. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's actually meant for those hematocritures where you can um, line them up with the top and the bottom. So mm-hmm. you line them up in this little black line oh, and then you okay. multiply by two that so that gives you for these really anemic animals they're oh wow excellent well you just know we don't even need a number on that that's just like yes do something you know there's some <laughs> nurses that are very good about like uh guessing the, the hematocrits we play that little game <laughs> say, oh it looks like a pcb of eight no no it looks like a 10 <laughs> <laughs> it's a good good little games of, yes. of medical professionals you know when i had my um my first son who i hope you might meet while he's here for the conference but i ended up in labor for like a day and a half and then I had a cesarean and because um, my husband and I are both like you know he's a vet I'm a vet nurse Mm -hmm. and they knew that they weren't holding back on their Mm -hmm. usual in-surgery banter and they were having bets as to how much blood I had lost (laughs) and they invited us to guess and then they counted all the swabs and you know whoever Mm -hmm. got the closest and then my um, my obstetrician was like and how many minutes do you think it'll take me to close and like they're like 17 22 (laughs) yeah (laughs) so I mean we have to do these things to entertain ourselves yes 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 and I think that makes learning fun too sorry you could make any you could Make any learning process fun, and I think it's much easier to learn. Absolutely, and to remember, yes. Now, can you tell me about a time when you were able to turn defeat into victory? Could be in a personal or professional capacity. Uh, it actually has to do with mechanical ventilation. Excellent. 
And um, uh, coming from the Caribbean, you know, we we're lucky if we had a microscope, at least stuffed it up ventilator. Yeah. So when I yeah. came to Penn, um, they had a ventilator, and it, it was very intimidating for me. And so what I and what I learned was that a lot of people wanted to learn the ventilator when they had a case there to deal with. Mm. And so you had the stress of the moment and the anxiety. So what I did is I would come in early on my shifts and play with the ventilator, you know, get a, a anesthesia bag and make believe it was a lung and, you know, uh, constrict the bag to make, you know, like we lost lung tissue or expand the back like we had. a, And so that's how I learned to feel comfortable with the ventilator. Wow, excellent. And did you, when you didn't have ventilators prior to that, did you ever manually ventilate yes, for patients? Yes, yeah. and, you know, in university setting back then, uh, the mechanical ventilator was the vet student. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. Yeah, we've only done it once, but we had a brown snake dog mm-hmm. come in and started crashing. And so we intubated and started ventilating. And then we had between one of our nurses and followed by Matt and I tagging in and out, we ventilated for it I think from about two or three in the afternoon until about midnight with the anesthesia machine yeah 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 I like using the ambu bag Mm. um, Mm -hmm. uh, because you can get a sense of the the tension of the lung when you 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 express it Mm -hmm. so you can tell how that lung reacts to that pressure Mm -hmm. whereas with the anesthesia machine you can't really feel it the Mm -hmm. bag's so far away from your patient Mm -hmm. Um, but you know um these ambu bags are made for you to add 1500 little things to it and you can do peep you can do pressure monitoring with mm. them and it's i think every practice regardless whether they're daytime or emergency should have ambu bags in mm. practice. Mm. absolutely well not another good one for the list and so your turning defeat into victory was rather than just waiting until the last minute when there was a case saying yes. i don't understand this machine and i'm going to make it my mission yeah. to, to well do so. i saw people get so stressed out and mm. it was like i mean it was really scary mm. um and i it, it made me feel kind of really bad for the patient that mm. we were practically learning with him yeah yeah so. it, it is um I, I see that happening too with things that are expensive like snake venom detection tests for example are expensive mm. and it's hard to teach people on the job so we tend to pull in the same nurses every time to quickly mm. do it because yes. the vet's doing other work up and you just need someone to run that test mm. and if you get it wrong and you know you're not quite sure is this negative truly a negative or mm. did somebody do the right. test strong but you can't afford to stuff it up because it's mm. expensive so it's yeah. hard you know that's why i believe in uh videotaping these procedures so that we have them there and then you can use them for training on your nurses there yeah you know video is fantastic i found something recently called loom and um it's just a a free website that you can go on to and you can record what you're doing on the screen so it's not something that you can record a video but i mean you can go to different websites or you can go to different training materials or powerpoints and it will basically record your voice and you as you click through and then you can save it as an mp4 or send a link and so we now use those for training for other things so for example for our workplace health and safety inductions and our radiation safety inductions we used to have to have one staff member going through the slides and bend your knees don't lift Mm -hmm. like this and then and one day I was like, let's just do a loom on that. And now it's mm. great because we just send them the thing and say, mm. watch the video. Then someone's going to show you physically mm. where all of those things are. And so. they see the same thing everyone. You know, it's like it's, yes. you standardize it. Everybody sees the same thing. Here's the same thing. Because, yeah. you know, 
uh, when you have different people giving the presentation, they could change from time to time. Yeah, yeah. And even better if you can. So, I mean, that's suitable for some things like workplace health and safety. And it's also handy for making a little video on how do you merge um, client files and not, mm-hmm. you know, um, which, which order do you do it? So you mm-hmm. can go through and show someone on your software, this is how you do this. And so all staff can access that mm-hmm. rather than a Word document with yes. instructions. But even better if you can also have someone film on their mm-hmm. camera, you know, this is how mm-hmm. we do a circuit check on the anesthetic machine or this is how mm-hmm. we do a snake venom detection test. Mm-hmm. And then people can watch that in the non-crazy time, mm-hmm. um, even watch it at home if they really want to get ahead. Yeah. So... And I still love doing um, a standard of procedure books just yeah. with pictures. Like yep. for us, I you know, how to make a major pack, how to do a minor pack. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I like those things. Yeah, I always like it when textbooks have pictures too. I'm very much a visual sort yes, of person. I can read it and go, what? <laughs> yes. Yeah, dude, like even for me now, after all these years working with computers, I have to print out my handouts and mm. read them so mm. that I can understand if there's there anything wrong there because I can't. I don't seem to retain just reading from the screen. Yeah. I have to have something in hand to read. I'm the same. I like something tangible and I never submit anything for marking yes, or if I until I print it. And I usually try and leave 24 hours between my last, if I've got time, mm-hmm. between when I've worked on it on the computer until I read it. And then I find extra words mm-hmm. in there, things that don't make sense. <laughs> yes. And I'm like, oh, my yes. gosh. So, yeah, I'm a big fan of printing yeah. and a textbook too that you can sit on the couch yeah. and flick through and yeah. – well, uh, I, I really like that um, that victory and it's in a theme uh, that I've touched on with a lot of my nurses too of the way that you get ahead in your career and become, you know, an, an outstanding vet nurse or veterinary technician is to take the bull by the horns and say, I'm, I'm uncomfortable with this um, procedure or this piece of equipment. I'm going to make it my mission to understand it. We so. have to be proactive in our own for, you know, in our own formation. Yeah, and particularly identify your your um, your Achilles heel mm-hmm. and say this is the this is the piece of equipment I feel like I'm I'm really not confident with my patient mm-hmm. and and tackle that one. It's tempting to keep doing the things that we're great yes. at. Yeah. Well, thank you very much. Uh, it's been amazing so far. Are you happy if we take a quick break? Okay. Excellent. Support for Radio Vet Nurse comes from Zilkeen. It's a supplement for cats and dogs that can help with stressful or unpredictable situations. You know the ones: thunderstorms, travel, multi-cat household all those triggers. Zilkeen contains alpha-cazozapine to help keep the animal calm. It's the same molecule that helps keep newborns calm after breastfeeding. It's palatable and easy to give. I mix it into my dog's food. Some behavioural issues are severe and Zilkeen probably won't help these, but it works well for many pets in stressful situations. Worth a try, right? In the next half of this interview, Arnhill and I touch on the issue of suicide in the veterinary industry. If this might be a trigger for you, tune out from 54 and a half minutes to 1 hour and 7 minutes. For 24-hour crisis support in Australia, call Lifeline on 131144. In the United States, call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline on 1800 273 8255. And in the UK, call the Vet Life Helpline on 0303 040 You're not alone and help is available. Welcome back, Anhul. What advice would you give to someone about to enter the world of vet nursing? Um, I would say uh, make sure to look that your that this desire comes from your heart, mm-hmm. uh, because when you do something that you love and it comes from your heart, it is much easier to overcome a lot of obstacles in your career and your profession. Mm, 
that's right that's right and there, there will be obstacles yes <laughs> yes but it does make you know, this little thing about what doesn't kill you make you stronger i think that's the purpose of these struggles for us you know it's kind of like uh uh, refining the ore into goals you know you have to put it through the fire in order to get the and I think that's it's same for us exactly in some of some people I've worked with sometimes the biggest high I've seen them on is immediately following an event that literally had them in tears an mm-hmm. hour earlier mm-hmm. so leading up to it they're upset they don't want to do it they've had a bad experience with it and you know we're not forcing them but they're mm-hmm. kind of going oh I have to do this but it's mm-hmm. super stressing me out and then you see them an hour or two two later after they've seen that client seen that patient done that procedure whatever it is mm-hmm. for them and they're just bouncing off the walls so happy and yeah it went great I did it yeah, yeah. And you're they like, didn't know they, they didn't know they had it within them to do that yeah and so in some ways it's it's hard to get that pure relation without mm-hmm. pushing yourself sort of right mm-hmm. to those moments that do almost break you. Yes. <laughs> yes. Oh, very good. And what advice would you give to a student vet nurse struggling with their studies? Um, I would say try to go and look for cases either in journals or in uh, YouTube presentations where you can see that concept, that you know, the pathophysiology concept that you're having about uh, ex, uh, exemplified in a case. Mm. So I think the the best way that I learned was if I had a diabetic case that I nursed, I'd go back and read out diabetes. Mm. And mm. it was much easier to understand the pathology when mm. I can relate it to the case. Mm-hmm. So I always tell nurses, you know, when if you're having problems understanding this, this, try to find some case or talk to someone who had a case like this and have them tell mm. you what that case was like. And I think it, it's much easier that way. Yeah, I do that a lot. And you know, even if you tell someone I'm trying to learn about this disease and they can find a patient and you can even read mm-hmm. yes. the medical note or the series mm-hmm. of medical notes, but mm-hmm. I would be the same. It would almost be like it would go in one ear and out the other when I was doing the study and then we would have a blocked cat or a GDV and then I'd be like, oh, I've learned about this <laughs> and, you know, nurse them for the day and mm-hmm. have guidance, but yeah. then go home and read it and go, okay, mm-hmm. this is all making sense yes, now. Yes, yes. Actually, you know, one, one of my... Uh, teaching tools at the clinics is that um, I will have them write up a case report mm-hmm. on an uh, an animal that they that would, they attended uh, there, so hit by car, you know, post op patient, black cat, and then they also need to um, talk about the pathophysiology of that disease process, mm-hmm. and so I it. Uh, I, Everyone, every once a year, has to make a case report. And oh, that's it, good. And do they present it to the whole team? Mm-hmm. Or okay, yes. that's a great idea. And then, then obviously, you know, you're there to help them put the PowerPoint presentation together. You, mm-hmm. They practice with you delivering. Um, but it's so amazing to see where they start. You know, very mm. insecure, and then they finally sit up there, and you, it makes you proud as a mentor to mm. see them having that. I think that's a great idea. I was talking to one of my nurses this morning because. I was encouraging her to apply to be an RVN, Mm. um, but it can be difficult for us in regional areas to get 
the points the you need. And yeah, and you need 20 points a year. And I think you can get 12 points a year just through your VNCA membership, through reading the AVNJ and doing the quizzes mm-hmm. and doing webinars. But I heard this morning you can get 10 points for doing a presentation to your team. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I said, I said we'll have to check how long it needs to be, whether it's an hour or whatever, but we should do this. You should pick a presentation, do it for the team. But a case study is a great idea for everyone to do for a presentation because particularly if you've got people who only work a couple of days a week or three mm-hmm. or four or one day then not the other sometimes we don't see the case from start to finish Mm -hmm. so you know what the blocked cat looks like when it comes in but Mm -hmm. you don't know what are we doing to nurse it and keep it stress free to see if we can remove that catheter and send it home a couple of days later so yeah Yeah, i what i do is um i in um in january we tell people okay you're going to be presenting in july so you have six months to collect cases Mm -hmm. And then three months before July, we'll sit together and you tell me which case you like and mm-hmm. then we'll work that case up for your case report. That's excellent. And then it gets people used to doing PowerPoint presentations yes. as well. And mm-hmm. if you have a bunch of those things just in your computer, like case reports too, you can flick them off for submission mm-hmm. to journals. Yes. and You could use it for training also. Mm-hmm. You know, so yes, that's it's very good learning and, and teaching tool. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and you know, um, there is a, um, there are different... Uh, groups on the internet like there's a critical care nurse groups and they can go there and they have cases they discuss you know every mm-hmm. week or every month about different things and they're critically uh, uh, emergency critical care nurses mm. and technicians discussing mm-hmm. these cases and these uh, mm. i'll try uh, i think it's called er tech rounds okay i'll see if i can find that and put a link in too and that's really handy as well like even just this today at the conference i've been turning to people next to me going do you use fentanyl patches do you use cris like you know you try and you know get a pulse for what's happening mm-hmm. around you and and who's doing what because then you can go back to your practice and say yes. everybody seems to be doing this maybe mm-hmm. we should be doing this so and I, you know and also i think that's what makes a good meeting a good meeting mm. when the when the speaker delivers material that you can take home and mm. you know put into practice, not mm-hmm. these esoteric you know concepts, mm-hmm. uh, but when I, I always say uh, a good lecture, you should go home with five key points to, mm. to your practice. Yes, absolutely. I've got the back page going of my notebook already, and it's. <laughs> It says take homes yes. and it's my take homes. And obviously I've got my notes at the other end, but every so often I hit a point mm-hmm. that I'm like, yes, we need to be doing this. Yes. Flick to and the you back. Know, and when they go on, when you send your nurses for CE, they have to come back and make a report on what mm. on one of the cases, they, one of the lectures they went in a, and what they learned and how they can apply into your practice. Yeah. And it is great training for everybody else as well. So... And are there any bad or old recommendations that you hear, whether from colleagues, clients, that you think should be replaced with more useful or modern information? My big thing is about we don't do enough or good of enough uh, education with our clients. Mm, mm. And I think there's a, there's a big need uh, for us to work very diligently uh, not only the practice owners, but nurses educate the public of what we do and, and you know what we bring into this profession. I think mm. there's a very uh, there's a lot of misconceptions out there in the public of what veterinary technician nurses do or don't do. Mm, yeah, absolutely. And um, I think that there's a, a misconception of of what we do in general because a lot of clients will only see the vaccination mm-hmm. and the microchip go in and they don't understand. Mm-hmm. No, we actually have a, a theatre and yeah. we're operating and we're recovering patients. Yes. And so, and I think there are so many wonderful ways to do that now with social media and a lot of practices have 
a lot of clients following their page that they're hungry to mm-hmm. see, you know, the mini little, I don't know if you could get this in the States, but like the Bondi vet or the mm-hmm. Harry's practice or mm-hmm. not the flying vet. Oh my God, yes. <laughs> that was a horror. <laughs> so yeah, a lot of clients really want to see that behind the scenes yes. of what we do. Um, another thing we always talk about is the importance of educating the public if we want better conditions for nurses as well. So yes. yeah. I think it's very sad that um, we have single parents, you know, uh, yeah. uh, nurses that have kids and they're they're single and they can't really make ends meet mm. with what they make just, and they have to work two or three part-time jobs. And mm. I think it's it's very sad that it's as hard as a work and as stressful as it is to have not be able to able to pay your bills or bring food mm. and yet, with what you do. Yeah, it is hard. And I mean, I always tell people, um, you know, that there are other other jobs you can move into from vet nursing or being a technician that can pay the bills better. But for mm-hmm. some people, they really want to stay in active mm-hmm. nursing. And it yes. is a shame that... Um, you know, I've spoken to someone else who is a rep and she was a vet nurse for a long time. And she said, you know what? I wanted to buy a house and I moved to being a rep and I could buy a house on my single income and I can support myself. Um, I think we definitely do need to raise those pay conditions and lower some of the household income stresses. And yeah. And in what ways do you look after your mental well-being and prevent compassion fatigue? Um, I like to read a lot about self-help books. Yeah, you know? right. So I'm very. I like to. I, I like to read actually a lot. Uh, I like to listen to these. Uh, uh, I don't know if you hear. They're called TED talks. Yeah. And I find that there are uh, many that are very inspirational mm. and educational, and so so I like to help educate myself there when, when I'm feeling a little bit, you know. Like, mm-hmm. hey, I need a little picker-upper. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. I like those too. I like podcasts where they'll interview someone like um, Richard Branson or Ariana Huffington or someone and you're mm-hmm. like, wow, this person has so yeah. much drive yeah. and energy and you try and figure out what they're doing and reverse engineer mm-hmm. a bit of their greatness. Yeah. And what are some of your favorite self-help books? Um, oh. <laughs> <laughs> I put you on the spot. Yes, I didn't know you were asking that one. <laughs> Well, you can email me those, right, and I'll right. put a link to your. I'm actually answers. reading a book now called uh, "The Power of Kindness," mm-hmm. and uh, I, I think it's so humbling to to find out that just being kind can have such a, an effect on on everyone yeah. around you, you know, without saying anything. Mm-hmm. Um, but another thing that I do also to kind of protect myself is that uh, once a year I do my own little retreat. Mm-hmm. So in this um, place up in Wisconsin, this um, monastery, you can go and stay there a week or a weekend, and you don't necessarily need to do anything religious. You Mm -hmm. can just take a room Mm -hmm. and just spend a couple of days there in the grounds, and you know, take a good book, or or you can share in the community life like Mm -hmm. that. And so I do that once a year, sort of like a little retreat for myself. That's great. And you hear about people doing similar ones like the Vipassana retreats where you don't talk to anyone. I don't know. Oh, the Jesuit, no, the St. Augustine uh, silence retreats, yes. Yeah, which sound amazing as well, but it is good. Oh, I would never be able to be quiet for a week. Oh my God, I couldn't do it either. (laughs) I would go crazy in my own mind, like, shut up, cat. (laughs) Yes. Oh, great. And so when you're there, do you engage with other people or do you just... Uh, you know, it depends like what what I'm dealing with when I go up there. Yeah. Sometimes I like to share with the community of the monks there. So mm-hmm. we'll, I'll go to their little afternoon, you know, 
meetings or mm-hmm. do community uh, worship and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I just want to be a couple of days just by myself, you know, reading some inspirational book, spending some time um, meditating. Mm-hmm. So it really depends what um, uh, I'm doing. You know, sometimes it's uh, kind of a me time mm-hmm. and sometimes is an us time, mm-hmm. you know, like we're, we're meant to be community uh, individuals that thrive at being in a community. Mm-hmm. And so I, I sometimes I like to um, spend time with them in that sense. And obviously because you've all chosen to be there, you're people who are on the same wavelength yes. at the same time. And do you meditate regularly? Uh, once, yes, like in the morning when I get up. Oh, you yes, do? Great, yes. excellent. I would like to get back to doing that in my life. <laughs> you know, it, it is something that it takes a while for you to get used to. Yeah, you know? yeah, it does. Yeah, and for a while you're like, is this working? Yes. Um, but I definitely felt a calmness when I would do it. And mm-hmm. I was always amazed because my dog who, I mean, he was, when I was regularly meditating, he was five years younger. He's now 11 and he's a Kelpie. So he was wild and always bringing toys and always crazy but when I would meditate in the morning he would creep in and Mm -hmm. seek me out and just curl up at my feet or in my lap and it would almost be you know sort of contagious that that energy and he Mm -hmm. knew and I was like oh maybe this is working Mm -hmm. because it's having an effect on him and I think that's something I take with me too with my patients like if I'm flustered and in a hurry I stop myself and I have a deep breath and I think what energy am I exuding to this patient yeah that um we tend to forget that they can read us better than we can read them (laughs) yeah totally sometimes they're they're your indicator that like oh you need to chill out like that (laughs) dog is freaked out by you (laughs) yeah and uh if you ever feel overwhelmed about life or work what do you do um i think it's the same thing about you know um trying to find a point where i can center myself or um uh read or, or sometimes I'll go back and go and reread a book that I read maybe a year ago that I found very interesting. Mm. Um, and I think when it when it's related to my work or my career, I tend to go back and remember the those, you know, cases that taught you a lesson, mm. like my first ventilator case or the first time that I had to, you know, do a blood transfusion. And I remember those animals' names. Yeah. You know? so it's a, I think that's one of the things with nurses is that um, when we weren't learning the way that the disease process worked, we had a little file of names. Mm. So instead of saying, oh, this dog has diabetes, it says, oh, this dog reminds me of Molly. Remember That's that little right. dog two years ago that had high glucose? And yeah. and so we we have this list of symptoms mm. and a name of a pet because yeah. we, weren't, we weren't taught you know, pathophysiology. No. We just learned it on ourselves, kind of secondhand. Yeah. Do you know I do that all the time when I'm helping our um, our new grad vet or if we've got a locum and mm-hmm. they'll have a case and they'll say, now how does Matt bill up um, a such and such case? And then I'll quickly have a look at what's going on with the patient and then I'll say, oh, that's Molly Smith. Let's yes. look up Molly Smith. Yes. And then they can see exactly the work up, exactly what he billed. Yeah. And I feel like I've got the software in my brain, like it's the clinic like software. like a file with little dog yeah. names instead of disease names <laughs> diabetes molly oh gdv 
Bruce. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. So I think that can really um, that can really help. Yeah. To to go. No, I've done this before, and I remember that really challenging first case and everything I learned from it. And and you can also go back and think, what did we do for that patient, and how do we look after it? And if you scan um, your cage cards too, you mm. can go back and see exactly you know, mm. how the patient was nursed and um, mm. the care plan as well. So, yeah. yeah. I like also doing M&Ms with staff, like, you know, mm-hmm. morbidity mortality rounds where mm. once a month you get one case that either was really, really sour and went mm. really, really south mm-hmm. or went really, really north and was really good and it mm-hmm. pumped everybody's spirit up. Mm-hmm. And then we, we kind of debrief ourselves on that case. Mm-hmm. Excellent. And so do you do that like at a staff meeting or something? Or? For, uh, well, it's usually for the, the clinical staff. So mm-hmm. the doctors do their own. The doctors do M&Ms every week. Mm-hmm. But for the nurses, we do it once a month for, mm-hmm. in our staff meeting. Mm-hmm. And, and then we'll take one case. And usually mm-hmm. they they pick what case they want to. Okay. And then... And then hopefully you're taking away from that. Is this correct? You're taking away from that... Yeah. This case that went south, maybe this is what we could have done yes. differently. Or yeah. this case oh, that... This is what we learn not to do in the future. <laughs> yeah. Or this one that was great. Can we replicate this mm-hmm. and how? So, yes. yeah, that's great. I'd never heard of M&Ms. Is yes. that like it's, a... It's very uh, an academic thing. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Sounds like, uh, it sounds like a clinical audit of types. Mm-hmm. Like Yeah. It's kind of a briefing. I think... Um, uh, and, you know, it has... To, uh, one of the things with M&Ms is that they some people turned them into an opportunity to attack the person who's mm. presenting the case. Or if, they were, if it was my case that I'm presenting, mm-hmm. they'll ask questions just to make you feel uncomfortable. Mm. So you have to be careful about those individuals that like to play that little game mm, yeah. uh, because it's supposed to be a very safe learning environment. Yeah, the blame culture has mm. no, there's no room for like, oh, yeah. so you wouldn't have thought to have yeah. given a So bolus? tell me what your logic was when you did that. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, it's one of the most difficult things isn't it is navigating yeah. the humans yes. within our profession whether they be clients or colleagues and big egos yeah yeah <laughs> we almost need i think more of that training around how to identify okay this is where this person's coming from mm-hmm. this is how to fuel that yes. the least this is how to give the least oxygen to what they're doing mm-hmm. and this is how to be the least offended yes i i'm always amazed uh, when I identify individuals that thrive on that type of mm. environment, you know? Yeah, yeah, that's right. I always try and I used to go to a place of feeling angry about that or feeling offended or sad mm-hmm. about that. But now I try to go to a place of um, feeling empathy for them, like, mm-hmm. oh, this must be an awful way to go through your life. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I want to ask you, what is the main area of our industry that needs attention or improvement? I think I would tie that with uh, client education mm-hmm. back yeah yeah and i think you know now that you bring the bring it up i think uh something that we're working really hard is that new cpr concept you know how it's changed yes and it's uh it's trying to learn something that we it was ingrained in us the abcs to now they're cabs mm, mm. and so i think that's becoming uh i think the critical care society has done a great job with this recovery mm. initiative mm-hmm. um but i think that's something right now that really needs to be pushed uh, forward that's uh, right among the professionals and among the clients too and you know we are so lucky to have Ken here, who is mm-hmm. part of the recovery initiative team. Oh, excellent, excellent. And I think he's doing a talk on it. So, yes. yeah. There's another area in our industry that you touched on this morning in your talk that I know you think needs um, 
attention or improvement and it's um, the elephant in the room. That <laughs> <laughs> yes, this um, uh, issue about suicide within our profession and, you know, everybody talks about from the perspective coming from the veterinarian, uh, but no one has mentioned anything or p- published anything about if, if it is or if it isn't, if it's affecting the, the technicians, the nurses, and even I wonder the support staff, the receptionists up front, you know, they're the mm-hmm. ones that have to ask the owner at three in the morning for a thousand dollar deposit and this owner's distressed and distraught and they're mm-hmm. asking, oh my God, how dare you ask me for money when my dog's dying back there? Mm-hmm. And so I, I, I would like to know, you know, if, how it is, if, if it is affecting. And I think um, it is uh, time that the caregiver, we care for the caregiver, like I was saying this morning. Mm. And um, the AVMA did this study about wellness and it all talked about veterinarians. And then they did say that, you know, it was more pronounced in women, um, but it doesn't say anything about the technician. And I personally know uh, a nurse that committed suicide and I know of other people who have no nurse. So there, there is something out there that that hasn't been looked at that I think it needs to. I uh, I try to do this little non-scientific little uh, survey of mine on my Facebook, and um, there was uh, not a lot of people willing to talk about the. Talk. And then I sent out uh, this little survey to fifty colleagues, all in emergency critical care. And when I was like, one of those questions was, you know, uh, how would you describe this? Is this a job for you, a career, a profession? And they all said it is a profession by calling. Right? Mm. And so I thought that was uh, very good to, to know that people feel called to this because I think it makes it much easier to put up with a lot of things in this profession. Mm. And then I asked questions, uh, you know, uh, what things have made you think about sometimes moving out of this profession. And then, uh, and I think this has been shown in other studies. Number one was, I, I feel that I've reached a point where I can't move up anymore in my practice. Mm. No, the first one, sorry, was, uh, I don't feel recognized uh, for my contributions in my workplace, or my boss doesn't recognize me. Mm-hmm. The second one was, I, I feel that there's nowhere to move once I've reached this. I mean, a, and either I, and the next th- step up is to move to management. Mm-hmm. Kind of what you were saying about people going to industry. Mm-hmm. And then the third one was um, that they couldn't uh, make a living as a single parent mm-hmm. in this profession. Mm-hmm. And then I asked the last question was what, what comment or what uh, situation did you find yourself in that made you consider uh, leaving this profession. And 90% of the people who answered said it had to do with either a client telling them in a moment of, you know, anxiety and in, in, in a very difficult case, an emergency case, when they're asked for money and the client says, oh, I thought you did this because you loved animals. Or, or the second one was, uh, it seems that you're in it for the animal. And I, I, I call that like a psychological slap for us, you know, mm-hmm. um, because uh, I don't know that they would ever say that to a human nurse, mm-hmm. you know, but we hear it a lot. And mm-hmm. I have to wonder how much that we take that and we carry it with us. And some of us are 
having this thought running to ourselves about, oh my God, they don't appreciate what, what am I in this career for? Right? Mm, it's devastating mm-hmm. when they say, you know, you're obviously just in this for the money yes. and you're somebody who has no money. It, yes. it is absolutely devastating. And I saw um, every head in the auditorium this morning nod when they read that response. And that, and I was looking around going, we've all had that said to us by someone. Um, and I don't know why it seems so common for people to be able to lash out. And I think when you're talking about the support staff, like the receptionists, mm-hmm. I sometimes wonder, do they get it worse than anyone? Vets included, yes. because I've seen clients before that will lash out on whoever's at the front desk with my team. But when I come out yes. and try to take over or yes. my husband or a vet, they, they I, pretend there's no, nothing wrong. It's the wrong. same thing in, you know, in the US, it's the same thing in England, it's the same thing everywhere. It's the, thing, yeah. the front staff gets it and then they, the doctor comes in and they're like, oh, hi, yeah. how are you? Oh, I wasn't complaining. Yeah. I was saying what a great job you all yeah. did. Yeah. And I've never known. I've always wondered if that's because I give people this vibe of like don't mess with me but I think it's I don't think it is I think it's because it's they can see that I'm part of management and it's that receptionist that they think well I can get some of my frustration out on this person and they don't know it kills people like you said they go home and go can I keep doing this like and I, I even know a vet who left um, working as a vet with small animals for looking after the welfare of um, cattle at the abattoir um Mm. you know before they come in to be slaughtered and she's not a single parent but her reasoning was if i become a single parent for any reason if something happens to my husband i cannot look after my family so i have to already get this job now just in case that happens and even vets are having that problem Mm -hmm. you know another thing you said this morning that uh blew my mind a bit because i i had always thought okay, the reason why we have this elephant in the room with our profession is because we have access to the drugs and we know how to administer the drugs. But you said, you know, if that were true, all these pharmacists would <laughs> yes. be dropping dead. But, you know, it it's, doesn't seem to be this scourge on the pharmacy industry. Yes, yes. Yeah, I, 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 I believe uh, we are a special group of people and I think because we're so empathetic, mm. I think we're also more vulnerable mm. to when people attack us. Because it, it's different when you attack a person uh, and they just go there and you're attacking their job. Mm. But when you attack a person's profession, mm. that's intrinsic. That's part of their, who they are. Mm. And mm-hmm. I think that hurts us even more. That's right. For so many of us, it's our identity. And just by nature, being hands-on and dealing with non-verbal patients, we're not only naturally empathetic people, but we hone our empathy to look at a patient and yes. try and give a pain score or you know determine how stressed are they. We have to have empathy and so say how would I be feeling if I were holding my body that way what is what's going through this patient's mind so I think you're right we're empathetic on multiple levels mm-hmm. um, and we're having our personal identity attacked but we've also got um, clients who are used to having medical care provided well in Australia I think it's a lot better than America but mm-hmm. in a government subsidized mm-hmm. system where they don't see what it actually costs yes. when the government pays for all of those blood mm-hmm. tests or that x-ray you had in the public hospital mm-hmm. they don't see that bill and actually it's a lot cheaper at the vets mm-hmm. <laughs> yes you know another thing that I did not learn till I became 
hospital administrator later on in my career was that um, sometimes us nurses have no idea how much it costs to provide the services that we provide. Mm. And I remember in my early years when people didn't have money, I say, well, geez, a bag of fluid is not that expensive. Why, why can't we just give them, you know, I have a bag of fluid secure. Why mm. can't we? And then when I moved into management, you know, I said, oh my God, no, it's not that easy. Mm. And I think, uh, Veterinarians are bad business people. Totally. You know, because they don't, well, now they do a better job teaching, but I remember they, they didn't teach. Uh, the concepts of business management mm. and the concepts of ethics, mm. uh, whether veterinary or nursing, uh, didn't start being really, really taught till these last three or four years. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't remember going to school and no one giving me a talk about ethics. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. And I think there's no excuse for us to be bad business people when it comes to owners and managers mm-hmm. because the objective of having, you know, a billing well and, you know, getting an income to be able to keep mm-hmm. the clinic going, it, it is directly correlated with the objective of advocating for your patients. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it's not like... By trying to charge more items, you know, it's getting worse and worse for the patient. By charging mm-hmm. more items, then we've done the pre-GA mm-hmm. bloods and maybe we snapped a thoracic x-ray beforehand. Mm-hmm. Um, we, knew, we we did all of these things that made that surgery safer. So, mm-hmm. I mean, I think that um, it, it's not something that people need to feel compromised about mm-hmm. because if you do get to, you know, value add on those services, you also have a patient that yes. we know a lot more about. So, and I think, yeah, I think, I mean, I would like to know in research as well, I mean, how how do we actually stack up next to other professions too? Because it's unclear. I mean, we always hear, in Australia, we hear that vets are four times more likely, I think, than the normal human in the world um, to commit suicide. Yes, but yeah. when I try and find that data, I can't find mm-hmm. where it comes from. And you know, even after the AVMA did the study, I still have colleagues doctors who say that's not true yes i hear that all the time and you hear other professions trying to claim it like mm-hmm. dentist friends like yeah. no it's dentists <laughs> yes i heard that too like dentists have a high suicide <laughs> i think they um i think dentists are prone to depression because they don't like that everyone's scared of them yes that too, that too. <laughs> and you know something that i found interesting last night when we were talking is this fact that the majority of drugs here that are, are supposed to start control mm. drugs are not locked up. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if that also compounds this issue of people getting access to the drugs. That's you know? right. There's been talk of making, so in, in Australia we have different schedules to you, but we have basically schedule eight drugs are the ones that are locked up. And there's been talk of uh, making Litabar a schedule eight drug, but currently it's not. So it doesn't need to be in the safe. Um, it needs to be locked away from public access, uh, you know, definitely, but it's accessible by everybody who works in the practice. And, and, and I know, uh, I know not personally, but I know um, somebody who's relative employed, a vet nurse who um, ca- came in after hours and took the Lethabub, um home and, and administered it. And and I know, um, again, not personally, but I also know of a vet whose um, husband, non-vet husband, took mm-hmm. the lethabab and administered it to himself. So, yeah. I mean, I don't understand how they're doing these coronial inquiries and not saying, 
how are these people getting this yeah. drug? So I think it would be wonderful to see Lethabarb uh, locked up. Um, and yeah, a lot of the other drugs that we have as Schedule 4 drugs, which is prescription only, I think you were saying are locked up in America. So, for hmm. example, we have um, Valium. Um, and that for us is locked the up. The shelf, yeah, yeah. Ketamine is locked up. Um, Butorphanol is locked up. Yeah. You know, um, hydromorphone, morphine, fentanyl, um, uh, those are locked up. We have the ketamine and the butorphanol um, locked up. We don't have fentanyl. That's something that I'd like to get soon. But so I, I don't know, but I assume that that one is too. And something that is more tightly restricted than anything is the codeine. Like when we have a patient that um, basically needs it like as a, as a cough syrup, you need to almost have, you know. It is also, it, it's uh, uh, in the States, it's a much more highly classified drug than mm. the, the others. Mm. Like we have schedule one, two, three, four. Uh, so codeine and like these other type of research drugs like methadone, uh, those are very, very restri- control restricted drugs, and really we don't have a reason to use them in the veterinary field mm. other than coating pills, maybe for management. But we don't really use a lot of injectable coating. Yeah, yeah. We sometimes put dogs on the the syrup, mm-hmm. but we will write a script and send the owner down to the chemist. But to get to get the pharmacist to dispense it, you need like not only a handwritten script, but practically like a single plum floating in perfume in a man's hat or whatever that they <laughs> yes. ask for. And yeah. then they ring and they want to talk to the yes. vet and you're like, oh, do you want someone to come down there yeah. and beg you? Do you want my firstborn? <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> oh, dear. Um, well, it's been really nice having you. I am going to ask you one more question about uh, mentors in your career, but I just really want to thank you as well for mentoring so many of the amazing um, VNCA um, executive members and and previous um, executive members and and helping guide the the profession to where it is today. And as I said to you, you um, had that beautiful poem that you distributed throughout the audience this morning and you played a motivational song for us too. You played Reach by um, Gloria Estefan and um, I made the really bad mistake of reading the poem while the song (laughs) was playing and ended up sobbing. (laughs) Uh, I am pregnant, so I am extra hormonal. It was a really bad idea. I'm trying to be professional in this room full of people that I know in a professional capacity. And I'm like, (gasps) I shouldn't have read the poem. So I want to thank you for sharing, you know, what was probably the most personally grounded presentation I've ever seen. And and it really, you know, it really spoke to me and I could see um, that you were feeling it in a really heartfelt kind of way too. So um, that must have been a unique presentation for you this morning yes uh a lot of the things i said there i've never shared with anyone yeah but i i felt very comfortable with the aussie nurses mm. and i think you know i said to that I, I learned to be become vulnerable by the aussie nurses because they made me you know um i, I didn't start writing poems and doing this till i came here yeah you know? uh Although when I was young, I would write poems and I'd like to write songs. And then after a while, I kind of stopped being because I thought, oh, this just makes me look weak, <laughs> you know. And so I was I, I think I went the opposite direction of becoming very clinical and mm. learning this pathophysiology and not being very emotional. Mm. But then I came here and it was it was good to touch back to that old self of mine. Yeah. And I think we're very accepting of particularly when we I mean, we 
we are, a, as Sue Crampton said in her episode, it's not that UK or American nurses are better than us, but we're a young profession mm. and we're growing. So she is all about, you know, we're just as good. We're just, you know, a young industry mm. and we should give ourselves a break and stop mm. saying that. But I still think that there is genuinely some, um, you know, a high level of respect for, for when we have um, international keynotes mm-hmm. coming across. And so I'm not surprised at all that you were reading poems and, and doing things like this <laughs> and Aussie nurses were like, yeah, this is awesome. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I can see if I were to do something like that in the state, people saying I paid for a 45 minute talk <laughs> on shock and he's spending five minutes of the song. <laughs> and, you know, it seems like it would last a long time and that people would be like, is, I can't believe we're listening to a whole song. Is the song still going? But it wasn't like that this morning. The song was uh, over really quickly and it took us somewhere, you know, yeah. like I said, it took me to tears. And <laughs> my, my colleague next to me who I work with, you know, every week, one of my employees, she was trying to talk to me and I was trying to not look her in the eye because oh. I'm like, she's going to see that you're crying to Gloria Estefan. <laughs> <laughs> well, I got a little wimpy there a couple of times too, but I... Yeah, it's all right. I'm sure there'll be a few tears over, over the week and yeah, um, yeah an emotional emo- an emotional um, time for everyone who's seen how far we've come and with the registration and, yes. and for us to see uh, our friendship over the years with you and how far it's come. So thank you for being a friend to Nurses in Australia. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you for inviting me to this podcast. It's been really uh, an experience. It's the first time ever I've been interviewed for podcasts. It was a very, very benign experience. <laughs> Yeah, it's pretty crazy. Hey? Yes. It's just basically having a chat with headphones on your yes. head. <laughs> and if you could reach out, which is quite a fitting um, concept for our Reach for the Stars theme of, of our conference, if you could reach out and thank a mentor who's helped you in your career and personal development in the industry, who would it be and what would you say? Uh, that would be Dr. Rebecca Kirby. She's a diplomat uh, the American College of Veterinary Internal Medicine and the American College of Veterinary Emergency Critical Care and founding member. And um, she was the director of the emergency service at Penn, and then I went with her to work at Pencil at Wisconsin when she uh, founded the residency program there. And I am very thankful because she taught me to love to learn about pathophysiology, and mm. uh, I just uh, I think it made so much sense then when I would nurse my patients if I knew what I was doing and. And I, I just think that she was very instrumental in being who I am and who, and how I am and who I am and what I do the way I do it. And I can see you replicating that because I've heard other nurses choose their mentor based on someone who treated them as more than just um, like a glorified cleaner or a glorified kennel hand and somebody who chose to speak to them as an equal or not speak mm-hmm. down to them or dumb things down which is something that you've touched upon today too mm-hmm. you know why I would never speak down to you guys like if anything I'll give you something to aspire to mm-hmm. and assume that you know more and you will learn more mm-hmm. yes you know um I didn't get to share this today, but when I started lecturing, I went to Europe, and then I was at that time lecturing with another veterinarian, and uh, I was behind this curtain putting the then time famous slides in the carousels, and the veterinarian said to another veterinarian, you know, I didn't come here to be lectured by a glorified kennel person. (laughs) Oh, and they didn't know that you were there. Yes. (gasps) And so... um, I remember hearing that, and um, 
what crossed through my mind was not very good mm, words, mm. but I made it a point when I went to lecture then to mm. make a point about using these big words when I was talking, it, even though I didn't know what they meant, but mm. I just heard them so many often. But mm. my point is I was gonna teach this guy a lesson. Mm, <laughs> and mm. at the end of the talk, I said, so, um, if a glorified kennel person understands this concept, I think you veterinarians should need more even better. <laughs> Did you look at this person's yes. face? Was there recognition and horror? Uh, yes. <laughs> yes. Oh, I like that. You could have chosen to react at the time and, you know. No. Um, but revenge is a dish best yes. served cold. Yes. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. And I guess just to finish off today too, I know we've um, – touched on on the issue of suicide today which can be um, a triggering issue for some people listening and in Australia I know um, we can call Lifeline the Lifeline phone number Mm. at any time which I will put a link to and in the UK I've just learnt recently they also have a hotline for for vets and all veterinary support staff Um, and I can't remember the name of the helpline but I'm also going to put a link to that too because I know we have some UK listeners Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know if there's any what's any particular uh, Uh, you know I'm not sure but I, I I bet there is. That I bet the AVMA must have had something. Yeah, and again, I'll 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 Google that and put a link to that too. Um, but obviously, talking to um, colleagues and friends and family is um, is super important for anybody mm. who's feeling the pressures of the industry. And like you said today, um, you don't know the solution, but um, we need to talk about it. Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm. We need to not just let it be the elephant in the room of the industry yes. anymore. So thank you for yes. bringing that to the forefront today. It's a, it's, I think um, people don't want to talk about it because it, it gives a projection of weakness mm. of, within the profession. I think that's my interpretation that we don't talk about it because it's like, oh, we're a whole bunch of, you know, uh, mm. weaklings that mm. can't de- deal with life and this is how we ended up. And I think people don't want to talk about it. About yeah. It. But, you know, it's the main, um, it's the main, of all the episodes that I release, the ones where a vet nurse um, or, you know, anybody in our industry, any of the guests I've had tell a story where they say, and, and I had a pretty much a total breakdown or I had total burnout and I left the industry and I did something else, but then I came back to it in a different capacity or whatever it is. When somebody shares a story that they were not coping, that those are the episodes that uh, make people contact me through mm-hmm. my email address, my Instagram inbox, and my Facebook Facebook mm-hmm. inbox. Other episodes people really enjoy, but they don't feel compelled to write mm-hmm. to me and say, "Thank you so much for for releasing this story of this person who seems like they've got it all together, saying that they fell apart because I just thought it was me, mm-hmm. and I didn't realize that maybe it's something that that is um, that that we're exposed to as a mm-hmm. as a hazard of our occupation." So. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that, yeah, that's right. We don't want to be perceived, you know, as a group, as weaklings, but we also have this idea that, well, everybody else seems to mm-hmm. have it together. So I don't want to tell anyone yes. I'm a freak, like, mm-hmm. but you're not a freak. Yes. <laughs> oh, dear. So, yeah, talking about it is definitely great for everybody. And, um, and yeah, continuing to pass on the ways that our mentors um, have helped us with other people we're meeting throughout our career. And I, it's just been an absolute pleasure to meet you and to, I don't know if you're, I hope your vibe will come across on the podcast because I just think you have an amazing vibe <laughs> and yeah, really positive energy. And um, it's just a delight to know you. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to Radio Vet Nurse, the podcast. To help us make more free episodes, subscribe and leave a review. 
Find us on Facebook and Instagram at Radio Vet Nurse or drop in at RadioVetNurse.com.